My next guest is a young actor who can be seen on NBC's St. Elsewhere on Wednesday nights. He was nominated for an Emmy last year. Uh, he's the son of a fine character actor, Academy Award winner, who was a frequent guest on The Tonight Show and we came out of New York. Would you welcome Ed Begley, Jr.? See you again. It's been a while. Be here. Yes, How are you? I've been real good. We talk Academy Award time is not far off. We were talking about it the other day. Your dad won for, I thought it was for something else. It was uh, Sweet Bird, right? Sweet Bird of You, Sweet 1962, of you. a fine film. Yeah. Your dad did uh, what, hundreds, 150, 200 pictures, something like I that? I think he did. He did 100 some odd, a lot of movies, yeah. 12 Angry Men. Uh, that, was, that was a good one. Somebody told me. Hi, welcome to Missing Pieces, MPE Life, and I'm your host, Don Anderson. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 8, Ed Begley Jr. Now, some of you folks out there may have thought from time to time, Don, you're in Los Angeles, and you're in the film business. Why don't you get a celebrity to come on your show? Well, those who have thought this, today's your lucky day. Because today, I have a very special guest, Ed Begley Jr., an amazing actor in his own right, but he descends from a Hollywood legend, as heard in the clip from The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson from February 23, 1984. Ed Begley Jr. has been in everything. This man is one of the most prolific actors in the biz. He has a new book out, a memoir called To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. It's available wherever you buy books. And the book is great. It reads like a who's who in Hollywood. And the funny thing is, getting back to that video of him on Johnny Carson's show. He would bring it out and hold it and they'd take a picture with it. And for some strange reason, I don't think it was uh, intentional, but I never got to hold the Oscar. These people, you know, in Neo Show would be holding it and I never got to touch it. It kind of hurt my feelings. And one day... He came out in this very nice gray suit, wearing a bow tie, hair parted on the side. He wears glasses. He kind of gives off this vibe of a nerd, a complete nerd. Like, you know, that's kind of the parts he usually plays, like a kind of uppity nerd, so to speak. And I tell you, this man is no nerd. <laughs> like, he is not. By reading this book, I found out he's been jumped by a gang in L.A. and stabbed like 10 times. He was arrested for impersonating a police officer and spent time in jail. He was a stand-up comic in the 80s. And the number one reason that he's not a nerd is the people he hung out with. Some of them, Jack Nicholson for one. And one of those people he hung out with, the number one reason he's not a nerd, he drank with Tom Waits. (laughs) Like, drinking with Tom Waits is like saying you played basketball with Michael Jordan or played pickup soccer with Cristiano Ronaldo. This man is no nerd. And if you don't know who Tom Waits is for any reason, I'm going to change your life right now. Get the album Closing Time playlist. They may call it a playlist nowadays. Whatever they call it. Closing Time. Look up the song, I Hope I Don't Fall in Love With You. And I'm going to tell you a part of the lyrics now. It's one of the greatest lyrics ever written. And the lyric is, The night does funny things inside a man. These old tomcat feelings you don't understand. Check it out. You'll love it. Now, enough about Tom Waits. Back to Ed. So he was on St. Elsewhere. Huge show. And he was in She-Devil with the great Meryl Streep. Google him. Read the book. He's been in everything. The list goes on and on. Seriously. Before we get to Ed, if you want to get in touch with Don, you can email me at donnpe at icloud.com. Or you can follow me on Insta, npe underscore life underscore podcast. 
leave a message for me there. And please, please rate this podcast. And for the few of you who are cool as shit, please leave a review. I love reading those. And that really helps the podcast grow. Thanks. And don't forget about the summit coming up in April, the Untangling Our Roots Summit. It's for MPEs, adoptees, and donor-conceived folks. It's our own little convention. I'll leave the link in the show notes. Now, back to Ed. Well, before we get back to Ed, a note about the audio. I recorded Ed via phone call, and sometimes the connection was bad, and the audio just wasn't great. I apologize. So I sent it through this AI software that kind of makes it sound more like a studio. But sometimes if there's dogs barking or, or birds chirping, it it freaks the AI out and it like makes it gibberish. And that happened in a couple places. And in those places, I went back to the original audio. You'll hear it. It sounds weird, but hopefully you'll forgive me in advance. Now, for real, here's Ed Begley Jr., Okay, I'm here today with Ed Begley Jr. How you doing, Ed? I'm doing very good. How you doing, Doc? Good. Most people will probably know you from where? St. Elsewhere? Yeah, that's that was my first really big job in my career. And that lasted 82 to 88. It was a very nice gig. Yeah, and you were nominated for an Emmy every year? I was. Wow. Very lucky. Yeah, I've seen you around. We we have common friends and stuff, somewhat. Actually, our kids used to play in the same baseball league in Burbank. You probably don't know that. I didn't know that. So I have softball, a softball, right? I think so. it must have been. He's twenty seven now, but he used to be a girl, so it might have been a girls. I don't know if it was a co ed or what. So it was probably when he was five or six. That park in Burbank, they have like the the airplane out front. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. The other thing I got out of your book is you, like, you know, the whole game, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, you remember that? Like, yes. it should be done three degrees of Egg Begley Jr. because you've worked with everyone. I mean, everyone. I'm very lucky to work as many years as I have with the talented people that I have. I'm very, very blessed. Um, I won the lottery. I didn't buy a ticket. Oh, another thing before we start on the story. So we have a common friend who was just on my last episode. It may not be the previous episode when this comes out, but the episode that I came out right before I recorded, we're recording this, is Brett Dalton. Well, I love Brett. He was instrumental in me getting this book written and published. I know, that's what he told me. I was like, I was talking to him the other night, and I was like, well, you know Ed Begley Jr., right? He's going to be on my show. He's like, what do you mean? Like, you read the book? And I said, yeah, I read the book. He goes, I'm the first one mentioned in the acknowledgement, <laughs> which isn't true, really. I just reread it this morning. But, but yeah, he was very instrumental in introducing you to the uh, publisher, right? Or the agent. The literary agent, David Vigliano, a very skilled uh, literary agent and a wonderful fellow who made the book better at every turn. His notes were great. His contacts were great. So, once again... You know, I've, I landed a field full of clothing. Right. Just by luck and knowing people like Brett. Yeah. Um, and and I just have to say before we move on, but the the photo on the cover of the book of you is just, what an awesome photo. How old were you in that? 22. That was my headshot when I was 22. <laughs> it's just like the wide open glee and youth and just um, good looking. Just, just, yeah, it's a great photo. The world is my oyster, and I'm going to 
chow down. <laughs> exactly. All right. So can you tell me just a little bit about growing up? You know, I grew up at Begley's Son Academy of Wardweller. You know, when I was, well, then 13 was when he won the award. So it was not the earliest parts of my life. But I got to be around this incredible world of stage and television and film. And we lived in the Valley, so I didn't have all the all that came with, with going to Beverly Hills High and being the son of a really famous star like Carl Reiner or, you know, Judy Garland. But I knew Rob Reiner, I knew Liza Minnelli, knew those people, those sons and daughters. So I got to be friendly with them, and that was yet another entree for the Valley kids to be integrated into the wonderful world that was south of Mulholland. My dad had the luxury of having not one but two homes, modest homes they both were, 1,700 square feet, two-bedroom homes. But still, two homes was a great asset for a guy who was a TV actor, a film actor, and a radio star, and a Broadway star, you know, because he'd have to go back and forth to Hollywood often to shoot there and back to New York to do plays. So he had two relatively modest uh, mortgages because he got it on the VA bill, both homes. And he, uh, you know, it was a fairly normal lifestyle in the ballet to a certain extent. But then I got the extraordinary privilege of going on the set with him, going to record different voiceover radio shows with him. And it was just very exciting. I wanted to be in that business because my dad was, uh, I'm convinced to this day, my dad were a plumber, I'd be fitting pipe now. <laughs> so did your guy's life change when he won the Oscar? It did. It changed big time. Suddenly he had, you know, he kind of was his own publicist before that. So we hired a publicist and he, you know, we moved up to Tony, the surroundings, we moved from Van Nuys to Sherman Oaks. <laughs> big move. Subtle difference, but still, you know, a little bit Tony, your neighborhood. And, uh, you know, we had a swimming pool that was part of this apartment complex and, uh, eventually moved to Northridge at a really nice home and, uh, swimming pool so it was kind of exciting for a young person i i was definitely a, a child of privilege but i didn't know it i had no idea thought it was all very normal right we live in i live in northridge now like louise and nordoff kind of close to see that's funny he was on donna avenue right there you're a plumber and lassen and oh yeah all of that yeah yeah, yeah. very close so and then it, growing up um, you had siblings? Yeah, I have a sister who's 11 months older than me, what are known as Irish twins. And so uh, she and I are very close still. Wonderful lady. She lives in Springfield, Mass. and works in financial aid at Springfield College. She's a, a great lady, a great sister, a great citizen. And then you have a brother too, right? I had a brother, Tom, who... I knew he was my brother for years, and I learned he was not my brother. He was, in fact, my cousin. And he was my aunt's son and not my father's son. We raised Tom Begley as his son, but Tom didn't know, nor did most people know, that Tom was, in fact, Aunt Helene's son. My father's sister, Helene, had a child out of wedlock. So to keep the uh, controversy down back then, you just kind of step up and raise the kid as, as your own. And that's what they did. The Irish are 
pretty good at keeping secrets. I'm sure you don't know this. I don't know if Joe told you, but I found out from DNA test in 2021 that my dad I grew up with isn't my dad. That wow. it was that I was this other alcoholic. <laughs> my mom had a type that my mom had a one night stand with, uh, but it's been great in a lot of ways. I mean, it was traumatic, but I found four half sisters. The bio dad died of alcoholism, but but usually people in this world we call ourselves NPEs, and that's not parent expected is what it stands for. It used to stand for non-paternal event, like in genealogy, but it's kind of morphed into not parent expected, which is a horrible acronym. It just doesn't roll off the tongue, MPE. But usually, usually when there's an, you know, a non-paternal event, like it's called paternal, usually it's the dad that you don't know, right? Right. In your case, can you just tell me about that day going to get your permit? So before Ed tells the story, I want to I want to play a little clip for you from his dad's Oscar acceptance speech. <laughs> and I think you'll see in this clip how just how much of a no-nonsense kind of guy his dad was. I'm sure that the nominees will be very grateful if I get this over with quickly. So, for the best support performance by an actor in a supporting role, the nominees are Ed Begley in Sweet Bird of Youth. Victor Buono in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Telly Savalas in Birdman of Alcatraz, Omar Sharif in Lawrence of Arabia, and Terrence Stamp in Billy Budd. May I have the envelope? And the winner is Ed Begley in Sweet Bird of While he's walking up to the stage, I just want to say, did you hear the glee in her voice when he won? And the crowd's going nuts. Like, listen to this and the whistles. And I think he was just a really well-liked and respected guy. And everybody was cheering for him to win. I mean, those were some huge names he was up against. Omar Sharif. Come on. you kidding me? I'm not Ed Begley. <laughs> uh, I'm a long way from Hartford, Connecticut. I want to thank Andrew Berman first, because without him, I wouldn't be in the picture. But I have a great. I just love when old-fashioned Hollywood Richard refers Burke, to a movie as a picture. For whom I had worked before, a fine director. But most of all. And this is from the heart. My agent, George Morris. Really and truly, this man had faith in me that I didn't have myself. I never dreamed I would get that part, but he had faith in me and he kept after it and I got it. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, I was 15 and a half, not quite 16. And I wanted to, the minute that I turned that age, as I was legally allowed to, to get my learner's permit at the DMV. So to get that, we had to run over south of Mulholland to Beverly Hills, where we did not live, but where my father's business manager was located. And he bounded out of the office to the car. I was sitting there and waiting for his return and handed me a document in an envelope. And I 
kind of sat and rode along and started thinking about, you know, being able to drive and renting motorcycles secretly. My friend Dave Goodman, you know, get some motorcycles and rent those. You could do that with the learning permit because you couldn't really have an older driver, a more experienced driver, always on the back of you telling you how to drive the motorcycle. So that you were allowed to do at 15 and a half. That was my plan. I was so excited. I was going to do that the next day. And I opened the envelope to look at the, you know, the birth certificate because I realized I'd never seen it. I wondered what the, what does a document like that look like? Is it written, you know, from 1949 when I was born, was it written on parchment with a quill? You know, did it have <laughs> one of those cute little baby footprints? Made separated, separation birth less likely. And then uh, my dad was driving along. I finally looked at it closely and said, Dad, mm-hmm. why is there no mother's name on my birth certificate? He didn't respond. He just kept driving. This was taken from a live reading that Ed did at Book Soup in Los Angeles on Sunset. Why is there no mother's name on the birth certificate? My dad would not much for touchy-feely exchanges. At least he didn't respond by going on the offensive with some version of none of your fucking business, <laughs> which had been his default setting for such inquiries in the past. In the minus column, he didn't feel the need to immediately respond or to pull over. He just kept driving, occasionally looking in the mirror. My immediate thought was, how could he think this wouldn't come up once I looked at the document? Had he simply forgotten that my mother's name was not on it? I knew who my mother was, Amanda Begley, May Huff. My father and Amanda had three children before she died of cancer in 1957. My brother Tom, my sister Eileen, and me, the youngest. After what seemed like an eternity, my father finally spoke. Amanda wasn't your mother. Amanda was definitely my mother. She died when I was seven of cancer. And she was my sister's mother, my mother, and Tom's mother. But all of that was untrue. So I said, well, who is, who was my mother? He says, Sandy's your mother. Now a double explosion in my cranium. Because Sandy was this woman that my sister and I were crazy about. We see her several times a year at Christmas, at Easter, or Easter basket, you know, Christmas for a present, and birthday for a present, you know, different holidays. She lived in Manhattan. She was a little eccentric, but fun. So suddenly I had this mother, but I didn't look at it that way. You know, a few minutes before I had a mother who was deceased. Now I have the live variety. That's a pretty good day. But I didn't see it that way. I was always, you know, the victim and this is horrible and this is terrible. And so I used an excuse to start numbing myself. And then we come into the title of the book, The Temple of Tranquility, and step on it. I thought I could get tranquility quickly from a pill and later from pot, then later from alcohol. And uh, that's not a good way to get serenity or tranquility in your life. It's it's earned, and you don't get it by ingesting something. So that led to quite a bit of adventure, misadventure at first, and finally some wonderful, very positive adventures. And here we are many years later, and uh, it's been quite a rise. So you draw a direct line from heavy use of drinking and drugs to that moment in the car when you found out your mom wasn't your mom? I do, because that's when I started to do things like steal pills from the medicine chest and steal liquor from a cabinet, you know, one night and sneak pot, you know, with my friend Tony, go across the street from the house in the, in the ball field and, and smoke my first joint. 
you know, it was all kind of secret and illicit and stolen. It could land you in jail and forbidden and exciting and terrifying and horrible and wonderful. And so then I went on a journey that lasted from, that was 1965 when I learned that news. So I didn't get sober, finally sober, till 1979. So that's, um, that's about 15 pretty good years. And seven years, 71 through 78, major, major quarter vodka day, alcohol use and pills and, you know, coke and sort of heroin four times and did lots of other crazy things and drove under that condition on the streets of Los Angeles. I dro- operated a vehicle in that condition, so I didn't kill anybody as a miracle dog. Congratulations on your sobriety. That's, that's a long time. What is that, 40-something, 44? 44 year, just December 21st, it was 44, just a few days ago. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. I finally got sober on the winter solstice so I could remember it. <laughs> That's great. And then, so just tell me a little bit about Amanda. Um, like, were you close to her? Um, I mean, I, I hate saying the word Amanda. When you Do you think of her? When you say my mom, who, who are you talking about nowadays? I talk about my mother because I learned who she was, my birth mother, Sandy, or Eileen Sanders is her full name. I, I talk about her because Amanda died when I was seven, and I have not many memories of her. I have memories of her, certainly. Anybody that's in your life to you seven, I would hope you have some memories of her. And they're almost all good. I, in fact, I can't think of any bad memories. I don't think she ever mistreated us anyway if she does she did i have no memory of it but she was gone a lot before she passed at age seven she was sick i know that she had cancer and she died of cancer but i'm told from reliable sources that many of the times she went in to be treated for cancer she was it was not a cancer treatment at all it was for alcoholism and the dts and she had the same disease my father had that i would one day have and so uh that was part of her her challenge at that point of her life. She also was a husband who not only was a Flanderer, but he, though he was married to one woman, he had two children with another woman entirely. And I wanted to just say how much uh, Amanda knew of that, you know, where did these children come from that my dad showed up with one day? Was Amanda in on the deal? Look, I know you can't have babies, so I'm having two babies with this woman just as a medical procedure, you know, nothing romantic about. I'm speculating at all this. I have no idea what went on. Everybody's deceased that could help me figure it out. But it's it's very interesting. I wonder how much Sandy knew about Amanda and how much Amanda knew about Sandy. And Sandy definitely knew, uh, had to know a fair amount about Amanda because that day he was in the newspapers, seen, you know, at the Brown Derby with his wife, Amanda. So Sandy knew about Amanda, certainly. He knew she was married. If she didn't know, she was we're not giving birth to two children. She was a spelunker and lived in a cave somewhere because everybody knew my father was married. So I didn't, I, I didn't get that. So your sister is also Sandy's daughter? Yeah, not one but two kids. So that's oh. not like, oops, I was dating that page from NBC where I was doing a radio show, and look what happened now. Oh, boy, what do we do with a kid? You're going to raise the kid, Sandy. Good luck. I'll send you some money. Wasn't that at all. He took the first child home as his own. And then the second child, because it was his own genetically. And that's, by the way, as a side note, been proven years later by DNA, you know, 23andMe and Ancestry and all of it. 
my father is definitely, you know, the, as my gene will tell you, the guy from Killarney, Killarney and County Kerry and Killorglim and County Kerry, where his parents were from, they came over in a boat. Same guy, same genes. There's no question. Now, there could have been, like, I thought, well, the mom is different. Maybe the father is somebody else, too. Who knows? It's open season. But what was told to me when the truth, most of the truth came out, was that, you know, my father was indeed my father. And that bore up to a scientific scrutiny years later. That's so funny. Because when, you know, like, it was like three people separately got in touch with me over a two-week period saying, do you know Ed Begley's story? <laughs> like Cindy Caponera was one, Joe was one, and, um, you know, and it was just all these people. And, and so I immediately went into like to figure it out, right? And then I started looking. I'm like, oh, my God, I bet you maybe his dad's not his dad. And then I looked at two pictures of you guys and I kind of put them side by side. And I'm like, well, no, he's the father. <laughs> like there's the shape of your nose and your mouth is, Yeah. I mean, his, very good. Good yeah. Right. yeah, but that's, um, that's great that you prove that, but that's, um, you know, and then when you, you know, talked about your sister being 10 months older, did you say like 11 months, 11 months, the whole Irish twins thing. I was like, Oh, you know, when you said that, I knew that, um, your mom wasn't your mom. And I'm like, Oh, that explains that it wasn't really Irish twins. It was just two different mothers, but no, it, it was true Irish twins. Right. Wow, that's quick. And then, um, and then, when did your sister figure this out, or did I, she know? So I came home from that car ride. My dad went in another room. I said, "I'm going to tell you something. Come over here. Sandy is our mother." What? What? What did you just say? What? What do you mean, Sandy is our mother? Dad just told me I got my birth certificate. I got it right here. What does it say? Let, let me look at it. You're lying. There's nothing that. He said nothing about mother. Doesn't say Sandy. Said, I know it doesn't say Sandy, but he told me about it. Well, he told me it was, it was Sandy. Well, maybe he's lying about that, said my sister. She freaked out so bad. I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was a terrible joke. Sandy is not our mother. Man is our mother. I tried to backpedal after just telling her the truth. And I was telling her a lie, you know, in hopes of just calming her down. She flipped out in front of my dad about it, which is what I didn't want. But I wasn't very smart in 15 and a half. Of course, that's what's going to happen. And then she rigged out and ran off with a guy that was a handyman at the apartment next door. And uh, lived at his place, shacked up with him for a little while. And we're going with my dad in the car down Hazeltine to go knock on his door and said, can you send my daughter home, please? I don't want to have to go to the police. Because she was, uh, so she you know, she was 16, underage. Right? She, yeah, exactly. She was 16 and a half. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's such a traumatic thing, right? And I, and I wonder, I, I suspect your mom not being your mom is more traumatic somehow. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, then, yeah, I mean, they both are. Right. Again, a direct line for your sister left the house at 16 and moved in with a handyman because of this news. Wow. Yeah. She was only there like a day or two. My dad went and made a good legal case for her coming back. And she did, but then she soon, you know, became so problematic to my dad by her reaction and behavior. I was like the, supposedly the good son when I was not that at all. Secretly. 
But I was going, no, it's okay. Thanks for telling me that. Everything's going to be okay. I love you. I pretend like everything's okay. My sister really reacted the way someone should react and was devastated by the news. And then she moved in with Sandy. She moved in with my birth mother at some point within a less than a year of that. She moved in with Sandy and lived with her for a while in New York. Wow. Wow. I think you kind of said it, but in the book, you talk about how Sandy was, you guys loved her, right? Before this? Yeah, we were just crazy. And we were both crazy about her. We just thought she was fun and special and wonderful and beautiful and just charming. And her mother was kind of great, too. Something about her mother. We met her. Wow. I like this woman. Something about her, too. And it turned out our genes were talking to us. Mm, Yeah. And did you have a relationship with Sandy after that? Very much so. I had a relationship on the phone with her. I didn't call her every day or even every week, but I called her several times because then they replaced a long-distance call. It was quite an ordeal. You couldn't just do it. It would show up in the bill, too. And my father, who the hell called New York? So it had to be talked to her a few times. And finally, at age 16 and change, I was nearly 17. We went back to New York to sell the house in New York. My dad could see his work, having won an Academy Award and all that that meant, was much more in L.A. And he could, if he was going to be in New York, he could, you know, get a hotel room somewhere. He didn't need the burden of a house. We were selling that. And uh, so I got to see her in person for the first time as my mother when I was 16, not quite 17. And that was quite a thrill. It was exciting. How did that go? Did you... Was there like a big rush, a hug? Was there hesitation because now you knew? My dad was right there. We're at the airport. It was a very brief, very controlled visit at the airport at JFK in New York because we were headed to, we just arrived from LA. We were headed to Europe for a 21-day tour of Europe. We went, you know, my dad was having a good year, so he decided to take me on this trip in Europe. My sister was off living in Berkeley at that point and didn't have the same relationship with her my dad at that point that I had with him. So I, the good son, supposedly good son, I would not at all repeat, uh, was being rewarded by this trip to Europe. And uh, we met her there. I think it was on the way there. Had like maybe a 20, 30 minute visit with her. And it was very exciting for me. And then my dad passed a few years later. So I got to, you know, on my own, I could have any relationship with I wanted, and I wanted it very much. So we got to be very close to two people who were not together as known son and mother, you know, until I was 16 and not any real regular contact till I was 20, almost 21. So I got to see her regularly and saw her regularly till she passed in 1998. So I had her in my life for. Boy, 30 years. Mm, that's great. And did she have any other kids besides you and your sister? She did not. She had several boyfriends that I got to know. Uh, she went with over the, year, over the years, but she never married. She claimed for years that she had married our father. And that was, and what was interesting about that claim was that there was a change of venue often. I married him in Vermont. Okay, then we looked into that, couldn't find any record. No, I actually married him in New York. Okay, married him in New York. Couldn't find any record of that. I think it was, you know, in the 60s, I think it was that she 
she liked saying, listen, we were so ahead of the game. We didn't need any piece of paper from the city hall. We just loved each other, my father and you, and we didn't bother asking the permission of the state of New York to get married or any state. That was the story for a while. And then for whatever reason, she decided that wasn't a good story. And she claimed they were married. A claim, as I said, would never bore any affirmation. She was a complicated lady. I had a, at some point, a few years into it, I realized I had to be fairly cautious and protective of my then family. I was married at two kids, and she was, my mother was kind of a teller of tales, as it turns out. She was a very successful, I'm, I'm trying to find another way to say it, but I don't think there is. She was a little bit of a con artist a lot in certain areas. She called on my sister at some point. What's the name of that school across the street when you guys lived there in Van Ars? It's it called Valeria Street School. We lived on Valeria. Oh, that's right. You lived on Valeria. That's right. Valeria Street School. Why are you asking? Never mind. I got to go. And then we later learned she claimed that she had taught there at Valeria Street School. She had not. She had no teaching credential. She somehow Cut, literally cut and paste the old way where you would cut a thing out and paste it down and try to get the shadows subdued so it looked like a real document. I think she cut and pasted a few things, pasted a few things, and she taught at the Quintana School for professional kids. It used to be the Quintana School for girls in New York, a professional, uh, like children, working in the business academy. And she taught science there, and she taught psychology. She taught several things there. She was Diane Lane, the actress Diane Lane. She was her teacher. Oh, Diane wow. shared with me at some point that she smoked a joint with my mother. <laughs> made her kind of cool to me at that point in my life, you know? Yeah. I mean, you kind of kind of but, admire a good con artist, you know? Yeah, she was very much that. At some point, she said, you know, there's something I can't give you and your sister any money, but I know you have a young family, Eddie, and I did at that time. I had two kids, like three and four. And she said, I've got a, a, a painter known as Asher Durant. This painter, Asher Durant, he did like Hudson Valley kind of paintings of landscapes and what have you. A somewhat known painter, painter certainly some value with original works. And I have this Asher Durant for you. I want to give it to you and you guys can sell it if you want to keep it in the family. There's something I've been saving for years. I couldn't find it. I found it. And I want you to have it. And I was very grateful. I thanked her. I transferred her back to Los Angeles. I had friends in the art community at L.A. County Museum of Art. I said, there's something I'd like to, you to look at. There's a long-lost painting by Asher Duran that my mother had, and I want you to look at it just evaluate it and see so I can get insurance for it. And the guy from the art, you know, uh, what would you call it, authenticator? I'm not sure what it was, the the person that knew very well of Ashley Durant worked to be somewhat expert in his work from across the room when they opened the case with the painting size of that's not an Ashley Durant. <laughs> and the signature was clearly done by somebody after the fact. I said, that's not remotely a signature. And I don't think it doesn't look like his work at all. See here, see the trees, what he's doing with uh, behind it. That, he doesn't do it that way at all. He didn't have any paintings that I've seen. So she'd give me this painting that was a valuable Asher Durand that was, I'm afraid, not not as reported. <laughs> like, what do you consider your big break? Definitely St. Elsewhere. And then in film, there was uh, Shevel. It was quite a break to work with Meryl Streep. 
was beyond description. Yeah, she's just amazing. Yeah, she's amazing. But I, I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. And um, thank Joe for setting it up. I'm going to have to give him a producer credit on this or something. Maybe associate producer. <laughs> definitely, definitely. He deserves it. The name of the book, again, is To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. Ed Begley Jr., it's a memoir. It's out wherever you buy books. Thanks so much, John. And thank you, and we'll we'll see you around. I look forward, pal. All right. I appreciate this. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, buddy. Bye. Again, I'd like to thank Ed Begley Jr. for sharing his story with us, and please check out his book, To the Temple of Tranquility, and Step on It. I want to say all the archival clips that were used in today's episode were used under the Fair Use Act that's written into the copyright laws of the United States. And the music I did have permission to use, and it's from the great Billy Sullivan, composer, studio owner, extraordinaire. To check out his music, go to sullystone.com. Thank you, Billy. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Don Anderson. And thank you everyone for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of Missing Pieces in PE Life.